Welcome to the Buddha Sasana Podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Austin, Texas. Today I want to finish talking about ignorance. Last week we saw how ignorance enables presumptions, and presumptions enable the chain. Let's look at this with regard to views and what happens when presumptions cease. It should be noted that although the Buddha points out painstakingly how our presumptions cause problems for us, he also scrupulously avoids making direct statements about what natural reality might stand behind such presumptions. For instance, Although the teaching of non-self cautions against the presumption of a self, he never explicitly asserts of natural reality, there is no self out there. For the Buddha, we never know if something is really true or false. There are five things that may turn out in two different ways, here and now. What five? Faith? Approval, oral tradition, reasoned cogitation, and reflective acceptance of a view. These five things may turn out in two different ways here and now. Now something may be fully accepted out of faith, yet it may be empty, hollow, and false. But something else may not be fully accepted out of faith, yet it may be factual, true, and unmistaken. As for faith, so for approval, oral tradition, reasoned cogitation, and reflective acceptance of a view. No matter what our evidence for a view is, it is still speculation. We do well to withhold or bracket our judgments about veracity. Nonetheless, the Buddha distinguished right view from wrong view. Right view has been described not as a correction of wrong views, but as a detached order of seeing to be put into practice, not to be believed in, or as something to be taken seriously but held loosely. Most views are wrong views. Recall that views are fermentations. Bhikkhu Bodhi describes views as tangles, knots, and matting in the works that prevent living beings from passing beyond samsara. They are not to be taken seriously. Recall also that views depend on contact entailing the self-other duality. If one knows and sees the eyes as impermanent, then wrong view is abandoned, identity view is abandoned, and the view of the self is abandoned. A wise one has abandoned all views because he has gotten rid of the illusion of self, and with that, a point of view. With the elimination of wrong views, or at least not taking them seriously, we eradicate mental rigidity 
and cognitive attachment. Nonetheless, detached, we might discern contexts in which views and concepts provide some benefit. For instance, even an arahant will find a concept of a self very useful to cross a busy intersection in one piece. Nyanananda states, one can make use of conceptual tools, but one must continue to sharpen them until they are worn out. Alongside views, we presume objects of contact endowed with many substantial qualities. Just as we learn to hold views loosely and withhold judgments of veracity, we also practice to hold objects loosely and not take them seriously. The fault is not that we know them to be fake, but that they get us into trouble. The effect of letting go of the conviction placed in naive contact weakens all of the downstream links, feeling, craving, appropriation, becoming birth and this massive suffering. What is not substantial cannot be ours, and abandoning these leads to welfare and happiness. We can train to let go of the presumptions of objects by cultivating a particular mode of perception or attention in which we view concepts or experience as empty, sunya. We saw an example of this with regard to the five aggregates. Recall from earlier talks that as the mind stills in samadhi, the experienced world begins progressively to retreat from the more cognitively complex modes of awareness, from cognizance, then from formations, then from perception, then from feeling, finally leaving the bare awareness of form. With this, content shifts and the world becomes more sparse conceptually. This is a progressive process of letting go of cognitive content and finally seeing no cognizable objects at all. We presume progressively less. The Buddha claimed that he often dwelt in emptiness and explained what that means. If we're sitting in a village, we're aware of many people. But if we shift our attention to the forest, our awareness can become empty of the people. If we shift our attention to the ground, our awareness can be empty of the forest. If we shift our attention to space, our awareness can become empty of the ground, and so on. Effectively, at each step, what was previously in awareness retreats into the background. Ultimately, one can dwell in pure, supreme, unsurpassed emptiness. Tanisaro describes emptiness. Emptiness is a mode of perception, a way of looking at experience. It adds nothing to and takes nothing away from the raw data of physical and mental events. You look at events in the mind and the senses with no thought of whether there's anything lying behind them. This is to dwell without presumption, without formation, and particularly without the natural attitude. Jnanananda defines presumption as a stage in sense perception when one egotistically fancies a perceived thing to be out there in its own right. 
which results in the subject-object duality and perpetuates the conceit of I and mine. We might be aware of our conceptualizations in the absence of presumptions, seeing them as empty of what we otherwise would presume to lie beyond the conceptualizations. In this way, we fully comprehend the mentally constructed nature of the world, which is to say, its dependent arising. As Hamilton describes it, this is to acquire insight into the very nature of cognition, into how our experience operates. She equates this to knowledge and visions of how things are. This is an extremely important achievement in the Buddha's teaching that brings us oh so close to awakening. She notes that this is not insight into an ontology or what we are calling natural reality, but into epistemology, how we come to experience things. To see the world in this way renders our experiential world groundless. We lose the relatively fixed coordinates that we presume are there in the outer world. The Cessation of Ignorance Once, in response to a question from a deity named Rohitasa, who in a former life had had the paranormal ability to travel to distant places like greased lightning, about whether one can travel to the end of the world in order to overcome samsara, the Buddha replied, I tell you, friend, that it is not possible by traveling to know or see or reach a far end of the world where one does not take birth, age, die, pass away, or reappear. But at the same time, I tell you that there is no making an end of suffering without reaching the end of the world. Yet it is just within this fathom-long body, with its perception and mind, that I declare that there is the origination of the world, the cessation of the world, and the path of practice leading to the cessation of the world. That path of practice is, of course, the Noble Eightfold Path, the universal elixir. Taking the path to the end of the world is to uproot all presumptions, to give up whatever we think is real. For presumption is a disease, presumption is a tumor. Presumption is a dart. By overcoming all presumptions, Bhikkhu, one is called a sage at peace. And the sage at peace is not born, does not age, does not die, he is not shaken and does not yearn, for there is nothing present in him by which he might be born. In the endeavor to give up presumptions, the contemplative practices come to the fore, in particularly the fourth satipatthana, observation of phenomena, and the jhanas. To end ignorance, we contemplate the teachings, particularly with regard to the upstream links of dependent co-arising. Bhikkhus, I will teach you the way that is suitable for uprooting all presumptions. And what, Bhikkhus, is the way that is suitable for uprooting all presumptions. Here, bhikkhus, a bhikkhu does not presume the I, 
does not presume in the eye, does not presume from the eye, does not presume the eye is mine. He does not presume forms, eye cognizance, eye contact, and whatever feeling arises with eye contact as condition, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant. He does not presume that, does not presume in that, does not presume from that, does not presume that is mine. For bhikkhus, whatever one presumes, whatever one presumes in, whatever one presumes from, whatever one presumes as mine, that is otherwise. The world becoming otherwise, attached to becoming, seeks delight only in becoming. He does not presume the ear, he does not presume the mind, and as to whatever feeling arises with mind contact as condition, he does not presume that, does not presume in that, does not presume from that, does not presume that is mine. For bhikkhus, whatever one presumes, whatever one presumes in, whatever one presumes from, whatever one presumes as mine, that is otherwise. The world, becoming otherwise, attached to becoming, seeks delight only in becoming. Whatever bhikkhus is the extent of the aggregates, the elements, and the sense spheres, he does not presume that, does not presume in that, does not presume from that, does not presume that is mine. Since he does not presume anything thus, he does not appropriate anything in the world. Not appropriating, he is not agitated. Being unagitated, he personally attains nibbana. He understands, destroyed his birth, the holy life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. There is no more for this state of being. This, bhikkhus, is the way that is suitable for uprooting all presumptions. Not presuming, we learn not to look at the things we formerly presumed, but to look through them. We understand that concepts or formations or modes in which mental and material life has been arrested and spit up in the realm of ideation. We recognize that our concepts cannot reliably get behind anything but themselves, that they are empty of real content. As we develop in this direction, our cognitive architecture has undergone a radical restructuring, and this entails certain profound experiences sometimes interpreted as religious or mystical experiences, seeing the non-duality of subject and object, seeing emptiness in all things, moving and speaking without intention, no longer accruing karma. The Buddha had little to say about the content of such experiences, but many claim that they are more veridical than ordinary experience. How to be an Arahant The question naturally arises, is the cessation of conceptualizing and cognizing really a good idea? There might be an enterprising reader out there who, until listening to these talks, had been entertaining a plan to travel abroad, to seek out, phrase book in hand, 
one of those rare arahants living in seclusion, deep in the forest among the tigers and pythons, hoping to bask in the radiance of this wisdom and to receive final instructions for reproducing that arahant's achievement. Now, however, that enterprising listener might already be reconsidering that this arahant, with the cessation of formations, of conceptualization of thought, and of cognizance might be incapable of functioning in any conventional way, beyond perhaps sitting under a tree and drooling into his alms bowl. Certainly he would be incapable of the delusive formations needed to discern this enterprising listener as more than the arising of a mirage or a bubble out of the emptiness all around, and would lack in any case the wherewithal to assemble the concepts necessary for conducting a conversation, much less for imparting a single sentence of dharmic wisdom. Does an arahant really have no cognizance? Was the Buddha like that for over half of his life? Recall from previous talks that an arahant has attained, while he still lives, what is called nibbana with fuel remaining, which has been likened to a fire that has been extinguished, but in which the embers are still warm like a ghost fire. He experiences this world with joy, no matter how it unfolds, yet also with kindness and compassion toward the suffering of the beings that live there. In fact, he appears quite active on behalf of others, appears decisive, responding immediately and fluidly to the needs of others because of the slightest hint of a self or of self-interest that might stand in the way is absent. He does this even though he no longer believes in the concept of a being and his activities are likewise beyond karma. Nibbana with fuel remaining is an intermediate stage before Nibbana with no fuel remaining, or final Nibbana, at physical death. A living arahant has not yet reached Parinibbana, and so the enterprising listener's conclusions might well be mistaken. Here is what I suspect it is like for this arahant. An arahant is the person with good eyesight who uncovers the magician's tricks. She experiences what the magician manifests, but without conviction, without appropriation, or rather with the barest residual appropriation, as something like a ghost world. She has not, however, forgotten what it is like to be deluded by the magician's tricks. Similarly, the Arahant remembers houses, but they have become like children's sandcastles, pretend. Although she no longer believes in I, nor in you, nor in that other guy, the Arahant does remember what all of these concepts used to represent. Arahants use worldly language much as parents use child's language, without entanglement or presumption. The world we take to be real is unreal to the Arahant. It is experienced by the arahant through residual formations, residual feelings, residual cravings, and residual appropriations 
that the Arahant remembers as once being real in her own experience, but which she no longer takes as real. She now sees right through them. Most importantly, she understands that some concepts serve a degree of usefulness in interacting with the world, while others are noise and distractions, or worse, perversions. She is astute in her judgment. I imagine that the world that we are convinced is really real is just as unreal to the Arahant as a movie world is to us. Notice that we generally make a distinction between a movie or fictional world and the real world, in that although we experience either in remarkably similar ways, we do enjoy a high degree of detachment in the case of the movie world. We know it's not really, really real. Our skin can crawl through a horror movie and our eyes can drench our popcorn in tears as drama unfolds on the screen. We may experience deadly fear, loss of a loved one, anxiety and tension, remorse and rage, and yet we honestly report at the movie's end, I really enjoyed that movie. We would be traumatized if the same things were to happen in the really real world. What happens when we see the really real world as also make-believe? The real world is for the Arahant like the movie world is for us. In the meantime, the worldling's attitude is quite different toward the world that the rest of us presume is really real, in which we do not enjoy the horrifying tearjerker in which most of us actually live. With this, we end our long series on dependent co-arising. Oh.